0: Acts 1, 12 to 26, we're talking about this morning disciplines leading to Holy Spirit power. Disciplines that lead to Holy Spirit power. Jesus has instructed the disciples over this 40-day period of time post-resurrection. As we studied last week, He has presented Himself to the disciples in many proofs. We learned from the text last week, so He has been appearing to them. He's been instructing them in the Scriptures. We read and studied that in Luke 24 on Resurrection, Easter Sunday. And so He's been teaching them how to read the Scriptures and how to, how to read them through the lens of the Gospel. And they have been practicing this. They display very clearly that they have heard and they're seeking to obey the Lord Jesus. And so this text today is an in-between text. It falls in between them seeing Him raised and seeing the proofs and them receiving the promised Holy Spirit that He said He would send as they waited in their obedience. So we're in this in-between period. And what we're going to see here is a little bit of how-to. You hear me say an awful lot about uh, when we read and we study, sometimes the text is just not loaded with how-to's. This text has got some how-to with it. Often the text tells us what. And the how-to is left up to Holy Spirit to instruct us and teach us and make application to us where we happen to fall. But this text gives us a few how-to's in regard to some vital elements that precede supernatural empowerment, thus the little title, Disciplines, Disciplines Leading to Holy Spirit Power. Now let me be clear, I'll be super clear here, we looked at this on Wednesday night, and I I gave you a hint last week that that Wednesday we would take a look at uh, some some things, some challenges around some things in the text, and so... um, feel free to, to come and chat with me if you want to get caught up and you're hearing something and you hear something and what I'm about to say that doesn't compute, feel free to, to ask or come and sit in on a class on Wednesday night where we do this kind of stuff and we'll explain this. So let me be clear, okay? I put this in all caps if you're looking at the notes. All caps is kind of like me screaming, right? Except I'm not going to scream. And you know what all caps is. It's like pay attention. So I want you to pay attention. You ready? Let me be clear. Our Pentecost took place at regeneration. Okay? However, we are to be subsequently filled with the Spirit as we obey the Lord. The observations that we're going to take a look at this morning are here not as prescription for receiving supernatural experiences at the whim of the practitioner. Don't hear... That if you do these observations, you are going to yank the chain of God and He will give you a supernatural experience. Don't hear that. These observations are not prescriptive of you yanking God's chain. However, these observations are practices of people, God's people in the text here, who were hearing and were obeying the Lord. And when they need power to preach, when they need power to bear witness, when they need power to perform kingdom activities, or confirmation of their faith, or rescue from prison, or strength to defeat sin, whatever they needed on kingdom mission, they would not be left unhelped. Make sense? And so, therefore, in this in-between time, if these disciples were practicing the things we will observe today, and these are the things they were practicing prior to the supernatural empowerment of the Spirit, we can take note that it would probably be a good idea for us, likewise, to practice these things. Does that make sense? And so we're going to look at these observations as disciplines leading to Holy Spirit Empowerment. little Bible study note. I don't know if you noticed, but the past couple of weeks I've been outlining our text. And, you know, Josh and I, they're at the other campus. They're kind of doing the same thing because we're two campuses, one church now. So we're coordinating as we preach through the same text so that they're kind of hearing the same thing. And you're kind of hearing the same thing. And so this little outline should be very helpful for you because it's, one, helping you to see what's in the text. Two, it's helping us to model for you how to study your Bible. We're asking the three most vital questions to Bible studies. You'll hear this word, it's called exegesis, right? Not exit Jesus, like Jesus please leave, but exegesis. It's a word that means to pull meaning out, to determine meaning. And so exegesis has three questions you have to ask. What do you see? Observations. What do you observe? Right? Then secondly, what does it mean? Right? And then... What are the applications to the church, to God's people, and then to me specifically where I am? So if you notice, we're outlining the text based on those three questions. So this will do two things. One, help you, help you see where we're coming from out of the text. But also, two, help you learn to study your Bible. Make sense? So anytime you read a passage, ask three questions. What do I see? What do I observe? What's there? Take notes. Take notes. Write down everything. Write down grammar. If you notice it's past tense, that might be important. If it's present tense, that might be important. If there are key words, like words that maybe are big words, you don't know what they mean, write them down and look them up, right? Observe. Then ask, when you gather all the data, well, what does that mean? And then when you know what it means, then you can apply it, right? You don't start applying till you know meaning, right? Just try that in real life. Try to apply before you know meaning, Right, Walk into your shop or medicine cabinet and just willy-nilly grab something and start rubbing it on your body before you know what you're doing. Are you going to get in trouble? Yes. What if you grab some super glue? Bad day. You should have determined meaning before you started applying. Right? Same thing when it comes to spiritual truths. Before you start applying, determine what it means. Make sense? So that's what we're doing here in the text in our little outline. And so... If you're wondering, geez, these are different kind of notes. Well, that's the reason. So what do we see? What does it mean? What do we do with it? Let's start with observation number one in verse 12 to 13. What do we see? Here's our first observation in verse 12 to 13. The disciples waited... And expect an obedience. Now remember, we're talking about disciplines leading to supernatural empowerment, walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Let me just say this to you. I told you last week, I'm not gonna rescue us from places that make us uncomfortable in Acts. We are going to enjoy them. We're going to walk in them because I said last week, this is how it's supposed to be. The problem isn't what's wrong with the text. Why was it different then? The problem is why is it different for us? It's not a biblical text problem. It is an us and our worldview and perhaps lack of being on mission problem. So we're not going to rob the text of meaning. We're going to seek to understand and make application. Right? And so what do we see? In these disciplines leading to Holy Spirit power, first observation, verse 12 and 13, the disciples waited and expected obedience. Then they returned to Jerusalem. Well, why in the world would they do that? Isn't that the place where this thing just went down? I mean, didn't they just kill the Lord? Shouldn't we go somewhere else? No. Why? Because last week's text, Jesus said, go back and wait. Until I empower you. So then they return to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus said to. Expectant obedience. Jesus said, I'm going to send the helper. So go and wait. And so what are they doing? They're expecting Jesus to fulfill his word. And so they're obeying. They return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's Journey away. They were not allowed according to extra biblical documents to walk much more than a certain distance, about a half mile. Because that would be working on the Sabbath. And so Sabbath day's journey referred to that little distance. And so they were over here, Jerusalem's here, so they're trying to still obey that little extra biblical command. And so they take their Sabbath day's journey and they walk back to the city in obedience to Jesus. Verse 13, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. It's the upper room. It has a definite article, meaning this is probably the room where they celebrated the Passover with the Lord. Where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. The disciples waited and expectant obedience. Well, what in the world does that mean? Number one, obedience always carries an expectation of good. Obedience always carries the expectation of good. One of the challenges in walking in obedience is we often distrust the Lord's word to us. The disciples here had no reason to distrust the Lord. He kept his word. He's always been faithful. And so the idea of obeying him came with the implication of an expectation of good. He said, go back to Jerusalem and wait. Let's look back at it. Verse 4 and verse 5 of chapter 1. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Don't leave. Don't leave. Every every part of their fright and every part of their human experience says, Get out of Jerusalem. They just killed our leader. And Jesus says, No. Go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. Go back to Jerusalem and wait. Wait. Which he said, you heard from me, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, and you will receive power. You will receive power. So back to Jerusalem and wait. Obedience always carries an expectation of good, is it not? That's how we function as humans, right? If we do what we're supposed to do, things will generally work out for us. That's kind of good parenting too, right? If they obey, then difficult things may not be hoisted upon them. Right? And so obedience carries with an expectation of good. And so they were seeking to obey Jesus because they know Jesus would be good to them because He's a good God, good Father, and will fulfill His promise. Number two, what does it mean? Disobedience carries a suspicion of distrust. Disobedience carries a suspicion of distrust. To disobey Jesus would to somehow be to distrust that He would keep His word. And so third, the disciples simply trusted Jesus to do them good and make good on His promise. They simply trusted Him. They trusted that He would do good to them and make good on His promise. Well, what are we supposed to do with that observation? Number one, we must make war for our faith in Jesus because war is truly made against our faith in Jesus. This is where the enemy loves to do his greatest work. is to cause us to distrust the Lord. Remember, we made the observation that obedience carries an expectation of good. One of Satan's greatest works is to get you and I to distrust the goodness of God and therefore disobey Him. This goes all the way back to the garden, right? The conversation with the serpent and our mother... Surely not, because the day that you eat, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Obedience trusts the Lord. This is good for you. Don't eat from this tree. Disobedience distrusts God's goodness. He's holding out on us. There's more to be had. So they rebelled. We must fight for our trust in Jesus' goodness to us because a war is made against that trust in Jesus' goodness to us. 1 Thessalonians 3.5 Paul writes this little nugget right in the middle of chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians and it's worth grabbing onto. Listen to what it says. For this reason, right? For this reason, when I could bear it no longer. Now, chances are 1 Thessalonians, first book of the New Testament written. This is after Paul's been kicked out of this city and he's had to leave and he hasn't completed the work of, of discipling these people. And he's had to leave, in his view, prematurely. And so he's writing back to complete instruction to them. He said, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, it's on my mind. I can't stand it. I have to write to you. I sent to learn about your physical condition... I sent to learn uh, uh, about whether or not you had good clothes. I sent to learn whether or not you had good shoes. I sent to learn whether or not you had a new iPhone. I sent to learn and find out if you had a cool new house. No, I sent to learn about your faith, comma, for. Here's the reason he wanted to check on their faith. That somehow fear, fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Who's the tempter? Satan. What's the object of his temptation there? Faith. Which is why he wrote to find out about it. Meaning the enemy wants to come at your trust in God's goodness to you. He's not going to give you what you need. You can't go and do hard things because he's going to leave you hanging. What if it doesn't work out? What do we do with this simple obedience? Well, we have to make war for our faith in Jesus because war is truly made against our faith in Jesus. You don't think these cats weren't worried a little bit? They obeyed with the expectation that things would work out, but... They are kind of hanging out in the upper room. Right? And so the reality is Jesus will do us good. Jesus will do us good. Jesus will do us good. We must do what he said. We must do what he said. You must, they must, we must fight for our trust in Jesus' goodness because obedience carries an expectation of good. Well, number two, what do we do with it? We have to fight the lies and doubt that cast a shadow on the goodness of God and his desire to do us good. I dare say there's not a soul in this room who has at some point wondered whether or not God was actually working for your good. Because after all, a worldview says well, if God loves you, things won't go bad. Which is a lie. That's bad theology. As a matter of fact, more often times than not, because He is good to you, He may twist it in a direction to root out sin and rebellion and idolatry in order to make us more like Christ. And so you have to fight the lies and doubt that cast, cast a shadow on the goodness of God and His desire to do us good. What do we do with it? Number three, believe Jesus' words. In Matthew 7:24, where Jesus taught us, two kinds of people, those who hear my words and do them, are wise, and they build their house on the rock, and the rain comes, and the winds come, and they beat on that house, and it does not fall because it has been founded on the rock. And then there's the fool who hears but does not do. And they build their house in the sand when the rains come and the wind comes and the trials come. They beat on that house and it falls. Why? Because it has not been founded on the rock. Those who hear and those who obey. Listen, dear Christian, it is a fight to trust Jesus that I must hear and I must obey. Jesus said, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise that you heard the Father say he was going to give to you. So go. What they do? They simply obeyed. And that is a fight. That's a fight for you. That's a fight for me to hear and to obey. Now as we work our way through the book of Acts, we're going to learn a little bit about hearing the Lord. I would argue one of the greatest, greatest problems of the church in the West is number one, we can't hear. The reason we can't hear is because the external noise is too loud and it's external noise we invite because it's perceived that we need it and it drowns out the voice of God and we wonder where he is, and it's not his absence; it is our rebellion, it is our idolatry, and our our desire for things above him. Jesus promised us clearly in the Gospel of Luke that he would give his spirit to those who ask for it. He's a good father. He doesn't. You ask for bread, he doesn't give you rocks. You ask for 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 bread, he's not give you. Or if you ask for uh, if you ask for fish, he's not gonna give you a snake, if you ask for bread, he's not gonna give you rocks. He says a good father. And then he said, How much more will he give the spirit to those who ask him? It's not a question of whether or not the Lord's speaking, the question is why can't I hear? It's not God not speaking. God is not silent in the West. We are a people who love our idols. We are people who don't know how to stop. We are people who don't know how to Sabbath. Listen, God's chewing me on this and I mean in a good way. Go read Deuteronomy on what God thinks about the Sabbath. It is a perpetual ongoing reality that we are to stop. The lie is that God needs my labor. And the reason he told them to stop was so that they would recognize that they live not by bread alone, but by the very words that come out of the mouth of God. So here's what you do. You gather this amount on this day. I'll make it last two days. I don't need you to break my instruction. And we take that and we throw that aside and we say, no, God needs my labor. Listen, dear Christian, every one of us in this room are expendable. He needs none of us. We get the joy of walking with Him in supernatural power when we just hear and obey. That flies in the face of everything we've been taught from kindergarten up, doesn't it? Believe Jesus' words. He who hears these words of mine and does them is a wise, wise individual that builds their house on the rock. Observation number two, what do we see? Verse 14, the disciples were devoted to unified prayer in obedience to Jesus. Look at verse 14, and all these with one accord were devoted, or were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. What do we see in this passage? The disciples were devoted to unified prayer in obedience to Jesus With one accord, this is a fun word, it means one in the same, one mind, one mission. One of the reasons we talk so much around here about our mission is so you don't forget it. So that you don't buy into competing visions. This is one of the things I I tell church planners, I try to remind ourselves when we talk about ministry and who we partner with. Who do you partner with? How do you work together? We just had a little disciple now, town wide a few weeks ago. And one of the reasons, let me just say this publicly, we don't participate in that town-wide discipleship is I'm not sure of the trash they're going to drag in front of your students. They are having to deprogram students at a couple of churches from the trash they heard at the town-wide disciple now. And when they talk about the people they're going to drag in there, I'm like, mm, I don't know. I mean, do we just partner for the sake of partnership? Is partnership the end? No. The end is Jesus glorified. and if the vision of Jesus glorified is intact, that will then create relationships, relationships create collaboration, and collaboration makes family. That's what Northwood that's 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 what I know. that's how I've been trained. I'm a Bob Roberts minion. I'm his little disciple. he's a spiritual father. and so it's vision, relationships, collaboration. Family, right? And so, and so, one mind, one end, that creates people who like each other because we have the same end in mind, right? If we have the same end in mind, guess what? We're walking in the same direction. This isn't rocket science. This is common sense. Make sense? And if we're walking in the same direction, geez, we can probably step together, co-labor, collaborate. And if we're collaborating, guess what we are? We're family. They were of one mind. One and the same. They were one accord. What was that accord? Go wait. Obey me until the promise is poured out on you. Jesus said, wait. So we got to stay right here. we got to stay. Jesus said, wait. He's going to pour out the power. So let's wait. One accord. One end. One mission. They didn't deviate from it. Why? Because they heard the Lord and were obeying Him. One accord. They were devoting themselves too. notice it says they were devoting themselves to prayer this word devote is a participle that's a fun piece of grammar it's a verbal adjective participles are verbal adjectives it's describing their action devoting means to continue to remain these were people who the tenor of their life was prayer Just an interesting side note, and I'm really not going to get hung up here, but Jesus' brothers are there. If you look back to John 7 5, Jesus' brothers don't believe him. Matter of fact, the Gospel of John presents his brothers as antagonists to him. Well, if you are who you say you are, why don't you go up to Jerusalem and present yourself publicly? Mark 3.21, Jesus' family comes to him, the house is full and Jesus is teaching people and they come to him outside, they don't even want to go in the house where he is and the reason is, Mark 3.21 says his family thought he was out of his mind. 1 Corinthians 15.7 tells us Jesus appeared also to James, his brother. Jesus' brothers are there. So you know what's been happening? They've already been making disciples. Which is an interesting observation. What does all this mean? That the disciples were devoted to unified prayer and obedience to Jesus. Well, it means this. It means the disciples were unified in acting on Jesus' teaching regarding prayer. Luke 18, 1-8, Jesus taught them about persistent prayer. Jesus defined in Luke 18, 1-8, persistent prayer as the tangible evidence of trust in Him. He ends that little parable with this statement that almost seems out of place. When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? And you read the little parable about prayer and then Jesus says what He says. You're like, Jesus, how do those connect? They connect like this. Persistent prayer is evidence that you trust Jesus. The disciples are unified in acting on Jesus' teaching regarding prayer. Second thing we see this passage means is unity and prayer are key factors in the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus taught them, when He appeared to them this last time from Acts 1, what did He speak to them about? Verse 3, the kingdom of God. The rule of Jesus Christ over all things. Unity and prayer are key factors in the kingdom of God. Unity communicates doctrinal truths. Prayer gets kingdom work done. I put a note here to see John fifteen sixteen, And if we see it now, we'll be there the rest of the time. So just go see John fifteen sixteen. This is fine. I'm really trying not to get stuck there because I really want to get stuck there. Jesus gave us prayer as a way to see him at work. John fifteen sixteen tells us he gave us a mission to bear fruit so that you may ask me and I may do it. He gave us a mission, then prayer, to get it done in. That's key. It's key because prayer is how kingdom work gets done. We bypass prayer. And we go to physical labor. Why? Because we're innately naturalists. We're innately naturalists. We innately automatically, because it's the air we suck in, it's our our dominant worldview that there is no supernatural, there's nothing beyond this physical world, and if it's going to happen, it's got to be me. I'm the captain of my ship, the master of my fate. No, you are not. Jesus taught us all through the Gospels. Prayer is how it happens. If we believe that, we would be a praying people. And I'm going to give some. I'm gonna give. I'm going to give some application. Hang tight. Hang tight. Prayer is how kingdom work gets done. Jesus' followers are already making disciples while waiting to be empowered. James has been discipling his brothers. What do we do with this? Number one, we're to fight for unity. We're to fight for unity. One of my prayers, I pray this constantly, is that Three Rivers Church would be unified. That God would build unity in this church. And He has granted, he He has done that among us. And where it hadn't been the case, He has rooted out. He answers and keeps that prayer. We're to pray for unity. We're to fight for unity. We're to treat others as though they were more important than ourselves. Anytime we begin to treat ourselves as though we're more important than somebody else, we've stepped out of the power of the gospel. Philippians 2. We're to be on Jesus' mission with Jesus' means as the primary tool of unity. We're to live in deference to one another. Consider others better and more worthy. Outdo one another in showing honor. Make disciples who make disciples. Be encouraged. The Lord is at work even if you're not getting press. We're to be a praying people. Hear this. Hear this. Don't think in terms of adding more prayers to a worship service. That is not what Jesus has in mind. Matthew 6, 5 to 15 is the kind of prayer we're talking about. You see, prayer in a worship service, that's fine and all, but that's not how Jesus taught us to primarily pray. The measure of your prayer life isn't how much we pray in a worship service. The measure of prayer life is Matthew 6, 5 to 15, where we enter into that unseen place where the only one who sees is the King of the universe. Are you better? Are you okay with people thinking you're not spiritual? Because you choose not to engage in a fleshly display of your spirituality? Did you hear that? Are you okay with people thinking you're unspiritual because you choose not to engage in a display of your flesh? Jesus taught us, told us two guys, one of them, Pharisee, who prayed beautifully. But thank God he's not like this God-awful tax collector and other sinners. And he gives a tenth of all that he has. And then the sinner, the tax collector, beat his chest and wouldn't even look up and said, Be merciful to me, a sinner, oh God. And Jesus said, That's the one who went home justified. Not the one who prays well in public. We're talking about prayer to the audience of one. We're talking about that closet, quiet, nobody else sees. We're talking about that rising early in the morning when nobody knows you're spiritual. Staying up middle of the night when nobody's looking. Prayer fueled by the trust that Father knows before you ask so you don't have to say it over and over again. Prayer that continually in the same breath repeats itself is prayer that thinks God hears because you did something to make Him hear. I pray like that all the time because I just want to make sure he heard it. That's sin. That's not how Jesus taught me to pray. Jesus said, don't pray. That's unbelievers. Gentiles pray like that. And they think they'll be heard for their many words. Jesus said, the Father knows what you need before you ask. So here's how you're supposed to pray. He taught us. It's not like this is ambiguous. He was clear. We're talking about prayer It's fueled by the trust that Father knows before I ask. So the mere mention, Father, would you bring unity, is good. Move on to the next request. Move on to the next praise. Because He heard, He knew before you asked. Trust Him. That's the kind of prayer Jesus said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you move mountains. I believe that. That hadn't passed away. That kind of prayer is the kind of prayer that moves people groups to believe. That's the kind of prayer that moves movements in towns where people begin to do kingdom work. Prayer for the kingdom to come. Prayer for the rule of Jesus to spread over me, over others, and over our town, and over nations. Prayer for the king's will to be done on earth as it's done in heaven. Prayer for provision to stay on mission, not prayer for abundance for the sake of having it. Prayer for forgiveness. To be able to forgive. Prayer to fight against temptation and evil. That's, that's the kind of prayer we're talking about. Does that make sense? I'm not adding a prayer to the worship service. That's, I'm not saying that's bad or evil. I don't hear that. I'm just saying that's not what Jesus was talking about. Observation number three, what do we see? Verse 15 to 16 and 17 to 20. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Verse 17, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his place. Observation number three, what do we see? The disciples grow in their understanding of the Scriptures. They grow in their understanding of the Scriptures. Peter gives some insight here into the God-breathed nature of the Bible. Notice what he says here when he says, The Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. That is a gold mine. Who spoke? Holy Spirit. How did He do it? By the mouth of David. This is is the Christian doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. If you come on Wednesday nights, we, we talked about the Word of God already we 'll back up if you want to come on Wednesday nights, this is the kind of stuff we do. We plow through this stuff. How do we get our Bible where 's it coming? Is it trustworthy? All that fun stuff second peter one twenty one for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They grew in their understanding of the scriptures. Peter now sees David spoke by the Holy Spirit, and here 's what he said, and Peter makes application to their situation. From the Psalms. Let that soak in for a second. Peter makes application to their current situation from the Psalms. I don't know about you, but there's great hope in that for me. You see, what we discover here is what this means is Jesus, over His 40 days of instruction with them after His resurrection and His teaching them how to read the Bible, has been very effective. And I wrote in my notes, no duh. (laughs) Remember, He spent 40 days with them. And Luke 24 gives us a little glimpse into Him teaching them how to read the Old Testament. And Jesus' instruction on how to read it has been very effective because Peter is now reading the Psalms and going... David said it. Let's do it. Because it came from the Holy Spirit. There's present practice to be gleaned from the Scriptures rather than our culture. What does this mean? Number two, there is present practice for them to be gleaned from the Scripture rather than their culture. In other words, they were able to look at the Bible... And take the Scriptures, understand it, and make application to where they were. And that was more effective than strategically coming up with something on their own. So what do we do with that? Number one, we're to work. And and I underlined and italicized work because it's important. We're to work at knowing the text of Scripture. And making application to our situations in life. Rather than letting culture speak to our situations. This is a great challenge. I dare say that most of us in this room would wrestle with reading the Bible and making current application. And there are many reasons for that. And the point of our time this morning getting to deal with all of those. But it is work to read the Bible, understand and make application. But know this, it not only is possible, it's what we're supposed to do. This is why you'll hear us call this the manual. It's in the manual. And what's crazy is, let me just throw this on you, it works. It is contrary to everything you breathe in culturally. Everything Jesus instructs us to do in the manual will conflict with the system of the curse that runs the fallen world. But the question goes all the way back to the beginning. Do we trust Him enough that there is good in obedience? Did it make you wiggle a little bit? It does me. See, we're to work at knowing the text of Scripture, making application. This is one of the reasons I'm giving you this little outline. What does it say? What does it mean? Now what do I do with it? Because if it means something, forget it. If it means something, then I am supposed to do something with it, right? Yeah. And guys, I'm going to tell you that just everything is fighting against that you're swimming against the current. Anybody rafted the Okoe? Doing that is trying to swim upstream on table saw. It's a, it's a big rapid on the Ocoee. There is no swimming upstream on table saw. You will drown, and culture will drown you. When you try to swim upstream of the curse, it will seek to drown you. The promise of Jesus is you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses, and I will make you swim table saw. And you will be my witnesses, and you will be empowered, and the work will go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Why? Because I'm making it happen. Just hear and obey. What do we do with it? We understand powerful moves of the Spirit won't come from following the curse's line of thinking. I think one of the reasons we don't see the kind of movement in Acts in the West that we see in the rest of the world where the kingdom of God is expanding is because we follow the curse's line of thinking first. It's the dominant worldview. It's just how you fit in. If you do anything different, you swim against the grain and it's too stinking uncomfortable. We are we are taught in our worldview to seek comfort first, obedience last, and then we superimpose comfort with obedience. Well, Jesus just wants if I'm following Jesus, it's going to feel good. No, sometimes it doesn't. Listen, listen. I I want to say this, and this is probably going to be I'm going to get emails about this one, but I, I, I got to say it. You don't choose to obey because you feel some kind of fake peace about it. I never get on a plane to go to our country and feel peaceful about it. And if my decision to go were based on my internal emotional state at the moment, I would never go. Why? Because I might die. Clear. Don't need to exegete that. That is clear. If my decision to obey the Lord's command to disciple the nations were predicated on me feeling okay about it, it would never happen. You know, does that make sense? So don't apply this this if if God wants me to do it, my soul will be okay with it. It might not. It might create great consternation. Did Jesus feel at peace that night in Gethsemane? His soul was in great distress, such that he sweated blood. Why? Because the way he was to walk was to the cross. Powerful moves the spirit won't come from following the curse's line of thinking. Powerful moves the spirit come from obeying Jesus on his mission. Listen, and I mean, and I mean everything Acts says from raising the dead to healing lame people. That hasn't passed away. I've been in places on this planet. I've seen that with these fallen eyes. The question isn't, does God do it? The question is, what's wrong with us? And and I think this little in-between passage is helping us get in the stream. Get in the stream. I want to live in that stream, church. I want you to live in that stream. Some of y'all say, I'm never coming back. I just resigned my membership. I am moving. That is fine. It's okay. This is the way it's supposed to be or this is a lie. And everything I've read in this says, John seventeen seventeen. this is the truth. Observation number four. What do we see? <clears throat> what do we see? We see that Luke adds some historical commentary, verse 18 and 19. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his, his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Gross. So in other words, he's hanged himself. He is rotting. He is bloated. And when he fell, it burst open. Gross. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akodama, that is, field of blood. Luke adds some historical commentary. Luke is known in his writings for what are called asides. Y'all didn't pay for that. That's a little free scholarly information for you. They're called narrative asides. They're historical commentaries that Luke makes because as we read in Luke 1, 1 1-4, Luke has researched all of these things well so that Theophilus and those believers can know the certainty of the things that they have believed in. So Luke along the way adds historical commentary so that Theophilus and the crew reading this understands that this happened, right? This isn't legend. This isn't myth. This is historical narrative. Luke's account differs slightly from Matthew's account in Matthew 27, 3 to 5, only in the detail of who bought the field and in giving more detail about Judas hanging himself. Well, what does this mean? Well, the reason we ask what it means and the reason we don't skip over it is because it's part of the Bible. It's inspired too. And we need to figure it out. Several translations. Put these verses in brackets. I get this is a footnote, so I'm going to stay on my footnote. They put these verses in brackets to indicate that they're probably not thought of as part of Peter's speech but as an explanatory comment by Luke. The story given agrees in the main with the gospel record of the matter. The details that seem at variance can be reconciled if we read the two accounts together thus. After refusing the money, the priest bought the field in Judas' name, which makes perfect sense, and on his behalf... And it was there that he hanged himself and his body was no longer hanging by the time it was discovered but had fallen from its suspended position to the ground where it had split open. What's fun about this is that the two differing accounts are evidence of their authenticity. I actually asked a police officer, our own Brian Gorish, this week because he gets to do this. this is his job. He's professional. I've heard this but I needed to hear it from a professional. That... When interviewed, if stories match exactly, they know that the story has been rehearsed and details smoothed out in order to give the appearance that what they're saying is true when in fact they're trying to cover something up. When stories don't match, it's clear what the nugget of truth is because the truth is buried in two perspectives looking at the same event. those That's my summary of Officer Gorish. He didn't say those exact words, but in our conversation exchange via text, that's my summary. Would that be accurate? Thank you, sir. You're the man. I'll pay you later. Just kidding. just kidding. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? Why is this important? Why did Luke stick this here? We're to take confidence that what we have is historically accurate and testified to by eyewitnesses, thus validating the message that's Luke said it, Luke 1, 1 to 4. In other words, what we're reading here is not made up legend. This is history and it is to be heard and obeyed. Observation 5. What do we see? We're getting close to the end. Hang tight. What do we see? Verse twenty-one to twenty-two, the disciples work to apply and obey Scripture. So, one of them who had accompanied uh, us during all the time the Lord Jesus went and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day He was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. The disciples are working to apply and obey Scripture. So, in verse twenty-one, indicates the cause and effect relationship between the Scripture's instruction, and their subsequent actions. This is why grammar matters. Don't read over purpose clauses. Does that make sense? Verse 21, so. So, in other words, because of what we just read in the Psalms, we need to now do this. Does that make sense? There's a cause and effect relationship here. In other words, the Scripture says this, I therefore need to do it. And they're working hard at trying to obey what's written. They've understood and now they have to act. They see the need to literally obey and have Judah's spot filled. That's pretty awesome. David wrote it in the Psalms. This is what it means. And somebody needs to fill the spot. So let's get after it. Peter and the rest of these guys, what does this mean? Peter and the rest of these guys have learned to observe, interpret, and apply the scriptures during Jesus' 40-day ministry because Jesus is the best teacher. And they're going to pass this instruction on and they were laboring at hearing and obeying. Dear Christian, listen to this. What do you do with this? This isn't this isn't here and what do we do with it? I just want to, it your chief task. Your chief task this week is to hear and obey. Your chief task is to hear and obey. So what do we do with it, number one? Let's work hard at being people of the Word. Let's work really hard at being people of the manual. Guys, I'm going to tell you something. That will cause us to stick out really hard in our current setting in history. This is the kind of stuff that caused the church in periods of our history, to stand out because they believed they should act upon what was written. And it was those things in history that made the church its most effective in history. Great movements in the history of the church are traced back to the people of God, reading the Word of God and obeying it, being empowered by the Spirit to do far more than their own physical bodies and minds could make happen. I do not want to die and live a normal life of a Westerner who never stepped out and experienced the supernatural power of the Spirit of God. I want the tenor of my life to be He heard and He obeyed. And whether I get anything on this side of it or not is irrelevant. Jesus will tell me one day, Well done. Observation 6. And this is where we're going to come to a conclusion. What do we see? Verse 23 to 26. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Disciples display unquestioning confidence in the providence of the Lord. I don't have time to tell you all of my story, but I am a walking display of the providence of God. So I hold dearly passages like this. Listen to this. Trying to labor at obeying the word. So what do they do? Verse 23. They put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. Now, what's the criteria? From the beginning of John's baptism until Jesus' resurrection. So with that criteria, the filter filtered out two. Got it? Had two good options. Not one of them wrong. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The disciples display an unquestioning confidence in the providence of the Lord. You see, what they don't yet have and they're about to receive is the Holy Spirit. But prior to receiving Holy Spirit, now listen, we don't cast lots anymore because you now have Holy Spirit who will talk to you. Listen, freak some of you out. He will speak to you. And He'll do it audibly, in your soul, however you need to hear. The question isn't, will He speak? The question is, will you have ears to hear and will you obey? That, that's the only question you would be asking. Do I have ears to hear? Am, am I quiet enough? Is the sound down enough? Have I cut off enough to be alone and hear? But prior to having Holy Spirit, they had Proverbs sixteen thirty three. I know this one by heart. This one gives me great hope. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You see, because how the priests would function is they carried the lot in with them, and they would throw it on the ground because they believed the sovereign God of the universe made the lot fall where it needed to fall. When they had two, three, four good options, they cast a lot till they got to the one that, that's the Lord's will. That's awesome. They display an unquestioning confidence in the providence of the Lord. They cast a lot, fell to Matthias, and that's the Lord's will. Let's roll with it. Why? Because the Lord is sovereign over the dice falling. What does this mean? By the way, you don't, get a, you don't get an option on whether or not you believe that. You just don't get that option. I'm sorry. That's in the manual. So you got to roll with it. You need to bend your life around it. That may sound harsh, and, but I'm not going to talk you out of that. You can't. I can't talk me out of that. What does this mean? It means the disciples truly believe the Lord to be the Genesis 22:14 Yahweh your the God who sees. You've heard me preach this before. He is the God who sees. You look at your little footnote there in Genesis twenty-two, fourteen, and you will see He sees. We translate that provide because it sounds weird to call God the God the seeing God. Well, Duh. Right? We say provide. That word provide, pravide, to see before. That's what provide means, to see ahead of time. In other words, God's foresight is His foreordination. Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son. Why? Because the Lord had already provided a ram that would be caught in the thicket at just the right time, at just the right moment. And at that moment, at that time, he'd be able to look up and go, oh, there we go. They believed that God was truly in charge of the details. And they could, as Lecrae says, roll and trust Him. He will cause the dice to land. So what do we do with that? Here we go. We trust and obey because Father, Son, and Spirit are good. Listen, your job is to trust and obey. It is not my job to question why. Mine is but to do and die. That's my job. Here, obey. And trust that God will work for good. God will never, ever, ever sacrifice your good for His glory, but He'll never sacrifice His glory for your good. They go hand in hand. God's glory is your good. The glory of Jesus Christ made in your life among the nations in our town is your good. We trust and obey because God is good and will never do anything but good in bringing his great name glory, which is why we have to get on his mission. Number two, we must be careful. This is huge. We must, not, we must be careful to not over engineer our days. This also flies in the face of naturalistic worldview that says you are the captain of your fate and the master of your day. And I'm telling you what, corporate world, Christian world, all world will over-engineer your day for you so that you can't walk in obedience to the Spirit of God. That's the spirit of the day, y'all. And it is the conflict every one of you feel in your heart right now. How can I do that? My situation won't let me that's because we're living in a cursed world that Jesus is bringing under his rule and the only way it gets broken is when Christians just simply hear and obey and the cost to you will be great Jesus told us that though didn't he do not overengineer your days by all means there's a fine line to walk here don't be a fool Don't under-engineer your day either. Use the calendar. Don't be a slave to it. When Jesus brings sovereign interruptions, know that they are and follow Him and obey Him. If He causes the dice to land, you can trust the interruption of your day. That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? But it's true. Number three, we're to not get flustered when things get sideways on us. We can respond in peace and rest knowing that the God who sees will make a way. Because why? When I obey, I'm trusting His good. When I don't obey, I'm distrusting His good. Fourth and finally, we must live with the expectation that the Spirit will bring the kingdom and do so through our kingdom work and give us all we need for power, authority, and supply live with the expectation that he will give everything we need to get his mission done and make a way for it. And finally, Psalm 147.1, we as a people, we worship. We worship. We worship with our lives and we come on Sunday mornings to bring praise. And so three of us church, cool things happening right now. Through Rivers Church is worshiping at Kingston Road. Through Rivers Church is worshiping here. We're worshiping together. And anybody who calls on the Lord Jesus globally right now, sing praise to him. We're worshiping together with them. Why? Because Psalm 147.1 tells us, praise the Lord. It's a command. It is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant. The song of praise is fitting. It is only fitting that we praise him because he is good. And church, he has given us a command to walk in his spirit. So let us walk in His Spirit. Let us obey and follow Him and trust Him to make a way where there sometimes seems to be no way and in all that to worship Him. So let's pray. Father, we want to come and we want to worship You this morning in song. We want to praise You. We want to worship through praise. So Lord, I pray that You would empower our lips. I pray that you would cause our lips to sing your praise, that that the fruit of your praise would come off of our lips today. Lord, I trust this morning that there are a lot of people in this room like me who wrestle with my world and wrestle with the culture around us and all that it hoists upon us in expectations, some of which are contrary to your kingdom. And how to walk in that. And Holy Spirit, I ask you now to be the one who gives solution to that tension. I ask that you would cause us to be a people who are hungry for you first. And whatever it costs us, may it cost us that. Lord, would you make us okay with that? When we need you to overcome every barrier that would keep us from hearing and obeying. So Spirit, I ask you to do that now. As these guys lead us in song, I pray that you would fill them with your Spirit. As they sing to you, the audience of one, and praise you, the audience of one, may we follow them and give you great praise. Great King of the universe, King Jesus. As We pray in your name.